Well, today um, actually marks the, the sort of the official end of our 21 days of prayer and fasting and our listening guide with which we went through a series of five messages. A series of five messages that dealt with uh, points out of Second uh, Chronicles that something is wrong. And, he, and, and as Richard Owen Roberts, as the author of those messages, was preaching, as in Hezekiah's day, the nation had been given over to idolatry. The, the house of the Lord was full of, of, of idols and rubble. It had been overlooked, if you can imagine such a thing. Uh, because King Ahaz, before Hezekiah, had taken the nation down a dark road. There were even perverted persons in the land that were requiring worship, and the nation had gone that way. But when Hezekiah came, he sought the Lord, and a great turning was happening. So they saw that something was wrong, and they saw, saw that something had to be done. They saw that something had to change, and they saw that something had to happen. And that's what the series of messages was about. If you still want to listen to those messages, though there are no more listening guides They're on our church website under prayer and fasting sermons, and you can go and listen to those if you're driving. Also, the last message, number six, which is by Dr. Jerry Bilks, Call a Solemn Assembly, has been posted as a Friday, and that is the definitive answer to what needs to happen among God's people in this nation of ours. Um. What's going on in Ireland, in fact, what's going on in, 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 the, in the United Kingdom itself and all of Western Europe, uh, what's going on in Canada, what's going on here, this is all happening rather quickly. And none of us can say anymore that, uh, that well, there have been bad times. There have. But this one is very pronounced, very aggressive and as a cancer that it is, it is it is insatiable. Its appetite is moving so rapidly. However, we also know the Lord our God does not kowtow to anybody. He will not be overshadowed with darkness. And He will make His church rise up. In which case, it is. I've had some good reports this week. Surprising ones of some things going on here in the valley on behalf of other pastors. And so I'll be anxious to be able to share those when I could substantiate them more. But as this morning is unfolding, let's turn our attention then to the, the sudden results of biblical revival. And I've taken this out of our listening guide, page 31, if you have your book. Okay. But out of our listening guide, this is adapted from Something Must Be Done by Gardner Spring in the year 18... Uh, did I get that right? 18... 15, yes, in the year 1815. I want to talk today by being looking at a litany of scriptures, but the sudden results of biblical revival when God brings it. I think by now we should know that when we speak of revival here at Northridge, we don't mean tents or events. Okay, we don't mean man contrived hysterias or some kind of a special singing that turns into anything. Uh, that takes off. We're talking about that suddenness of God's nearness and visitation with which He arrests the souls of His people. He holds them close and He begins a major restorative work in His own people 
so that their lives are realigned into obedience with Him. This is a gracious act of God because we get stuck. And when we get stuck, we can't get out ourselves. And that's the purpose of biblical revival. Uh, We know that when biblical revivals occur in their suddenness, that they always end with a great uh, effect upon the lost people around. In which case, if you've been out on outreach with us, we know how hard the people are to the gospel right now. We know it. We know how resistant they are. Um, And so we can only equate that with one of the remedial judgments of God is when He lifts his, His fear off the land. Now, I want you to think about that. When, when God takes His fear away from a people, they are free to go into whatever they want to without any kind of holdback. But with that fear gone, certain destruction is also coming all the more quicker, all the more fast. Revival is when God's people look and say, God, something is wrong Something has to change in us. We must do something. It must happen. And so we all know that prayer, the broken kind of prayer, the prayer that is driven by desperation for God to do that something in response to what's wrong is what brings and cultivates this atmosphere with which God sometimes in His sheer grace will suddenly come. And then, of course, is when you read about these stories of a solemnity that hold over the people when not even a breath can be heard, just the weeping as God does a work in His church. So, the operative word then in revival seems to be suddenly. To me, as I've read it in various different books and by different authors, Uh, All taking a point of view of of the great awakenings and revivals that have happened in the past. Suddenly is the word used. Suddenly. Charles Hodge. uh, He has a description of the nature of revival. Try to listen to what he writes here. He says, Revival, it is a familiar fact that religion, and now that's what they're calling the, the connectedness of God. This is old speak. Okay, We shy away from that way today. We don't use religion, but... What he's saying when he says religion, he means a right view of God to reconnection with the God of the Bible and of the Scriptures. He said, it is a familiar fact that religion in the soul is sometimes in a lower and sometimes in a higher state. So it, it, it ebbs and flows. And he said, the passage from one to the other is more or less rapid. So it can quickly grow, go from a low to a high. It can also quickly go from a high to a low. And so in a church or community, there are periods of decline and there are periods of refreshing. So under the Old Testament dispensation, so in the time of Christ, so in the time of the Reformation, in the time of Edwards and since. The, fra- the phrase here has acquired a conventional sense. It is confined to a sudden change from general inattention to a general attention to religion. So in, in other words, what he's saying is there's when, when God is moving in biblical revival, it is a sudden change from general apathy to a great focus and desire 
for the things of Christ. And there are those seasons in, in which the zeal of Christians is manifestly increased and in which large numbers of persons are converted to God. That's what happens in biblical revival. And the operative word again is suddenly. In Second Chronicles, we see this in chapter 29, verse 36. It says, Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly, right? Now, they had been actively consecrating the temple, and they cleaned out the rubbish, and they had done all those things, and they did all they could do. But suddenly, God began to stir among His people, suddenly. And if you've ever, if you've ever had the, the blessing of that suddenness, you'll never, you'll never be the same. Isaiah 48, verse 3, Isaiah writes, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. This is what God is speaking to His people. Notice what He says, suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. God is saying, I'll do it suddenly. And in Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into His temple. And if you can imagine in those days, there was John the Baptist. He was announcing the Messiah. And then suddenly, there was Jesus presenting Himself before the forerunner. Suddenly. He will come to His temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 2, we read about Pentecost. And it says, and as they were gathered in that upper room, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And all of this was without planning. So how do you know if something is a real biblical revival or just a man-made impersonation? The suddenness of it and the fruit of it. You can't plan it. Years ago, I remember uh, it started happening down in Utah. I remember seeing signs, and this is very prominent in the south. When you drive, there's so many churches there, so many in all the small towns. You have just Baptist church, Methodist church, and the assembly church, and they all have their signs out by the road, okay? And they have the, the little reader boards, and it would say, and I kid you not, this happens all the time, revival, and they'll put the date, July 7th through the 15th, 7 o'clock. And then, of course, you go down a little further, and there's a different church, and it'll say revival, August 23rd through whatever, and they'll have the time. And before I even knew anything about this, I thought, how do they know, really? But when you grow up underneath that, uh, that paradigm, they gotten so far away from what biblical revival is, that they were talking about planned meetings. Planned meetings that were intended to invoke the Spirit of God to come down. And they would have revival. And these revival services always uh, uh, were made up of, of a strong preacher that would preach, you know, hellfire and brimstone messages, or they would always have a maybe a guest a uh, worship leader would come in for the week. And, uh, of course, it could only last a week. 
okay, I mean, that was it. Um, and then they would have their revival. And, they, and then afterwards they would say, we were, we were happy to report our revival services yielded 25 souls or whatever. That is nothing. That, 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 that is not biblical revival. Biblical revival, as you have already been acquainted with, is when God suddenly, without it being on the reader board out there, suddenly God descends upon the congregation and people are brought face to face with who they are before a holy God. And God's people begin to repent of their slovenness, their casualness, their apathy, their negativity, their critical spirit. Their unforgiveness. They begin to get realigned by the unction and movement of the Holy Spirit of God as He deals with them. And then uh, generally it's accompanied with just much tear. Sometimes just open weeping at the altar is full because people can't get close enough to the presence of God. The preacher's not preaching. It's just God moving. And then the lost in the congregation are brought face to face with their lost condition and are fleeing to Christ. Help me. They understand their predicament. And it can last. I don't know. It just depends. They generally don't go home very soon. And it's just up to God. Because it can't be planned. So suddenly is the word. From the pamphlet then, uh, in, the, in the reader guide, I want to read a section here. <clears throat> I'm just going to read a part of it. Um, Gardner Spring is, is, is talking about uh, revivals of religion. And again, I explained what that means to you in his day. And he begins to describe it. He said, the showers of divine grace often begin like other showers, with here and there a drop. The revival in the days of Hezekiah arose from a very small beginning. In the early stages of a work of grace, God is usually pleased to affect the hearts of some of His own people. That would be the drops. You follow? Here and there, an individual Christian is roused from his stupor. The objects of faith begin to predominate over the objects of sense and His languishing grace is to be more lively and constant exercise. In the progress of the work, the quickening power of, the, of, of grace pervades the church, bowed down under a sense of their own stupidity and the impending danger of sinners, the great body of professing Christians are anxious and prayerful. That, that's the connect to prayer. They become anxious, anticipatory, and prayerful. In the meantime, the influences of the Holy Spirit are extended to the world. That's then out there. And the, and, the con, and the conversion of one or two or a very small number frequently proves the occasion of a very general concern among a whole people. Suddenly there's a God awareness around. Everything now begins to, be, to put on a new face. Ministers are animated. Christians are solemn. Sinners are alarmed. The house of God is thronged and anxious worshipers Opportunities for prayer and religious conferences are multiplied. Breathless silence pervades every seat and solemnity every bosom. Not an eye wanders. Not a heart is indifferent. 
While eternal objects are brought near, an eternal truth is seen in its wide connections and in its quickening and condemning power. The Lord is there. Can you imagine? Does that not just do something inside of you? He's, his stately steppings are seen. His own almighty uh, and invisible hand is felt. His spirit is passing from heart to heart in his awakening. Convincing, regenerating, and sanctifying agency upon the souls of men. Those who have been long careless and indifferent to the concerns of the soul are awakened to a sense of their sinfulness, their danger, and their duty. Those who have cast off fear and restrained prayer have become anxious and prayerful. Those who have been stout-hearted and far from righteousness are subdued by the power of God and brought near by the blood of Christ. The King of Zion takes away the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh. Yeah. He causes the captive exiles to hasten that he may be loosed lest he die in the pit and his bread should fail. He takes off the tattered garments of the prodigal, clothes him with the best robe, and gives him a cordial welcome to all the munificence of his grace. He brings those who have been long in bondage out of the prison house, knocks off the chains that bind them down to sin and death, bestows the immunities or protections of sons and daughters, and receives them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's, that's biblical revival. And I want to talk on that because those, that last section I read is just nothing but a, a conglomeration of verses strung together. And I want to take a look at those really quick. Gardner Spring uses the phrase, those who have cast off fear and restrained prayer have become anxious and prayerful. In other words, those who no longer care about prayer and those who are no longer anticipatory for the things of God, they've been lulled to sleep by the, the convenience of the world and the, and the security that they've invented for themselves. They're no longer moved, but then suddenly God moves in them and, and prayer becomes a driving urge, a compulsion that they must have. They don't have to be talked into it anymore. You see, they don't have to be, you don't have to wait to present, let's go to prayer, they're there. Proverbs 29, 18 is where he gets this. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. There's a changeover. And then Job 15, 4. Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. See, that fear is restored to that one because of the suddenness of God moving back upon his prodigal child that has drifted. That's biblical revival. You cannot manufacture that. Number two, he uses the phrase, those who have been stout-hearted and far from righteousness are subdued by the power of God and brought near by the blood of Christ. Proud, sinful, and arrogant in it. In Isaiah 46, 12, this is where he is, he's influenced by to write this statement. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. Who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. And it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion. For Israel my glory. The emphasis being that God is saying. 
to the, to, the, to the sinner that is just proud and dead in their sin. I have come near and I have brought it near to you in your stubbornness. I've brought my righteousness. It's not far off. It is near you. And then he says, we, we read in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. You only come one way. If you're here and you don't know Jesus. And you are unmoved in your sinful condition. I pray that God would have mercy upon you. And that he would allow and bless you with his fear. As it is a gift the scripture says. And that you would know the, the, the predicament that you are in for at any moment. Your heart would stop or could stop. And, and hell will be your future. And Christ came to save us from the wrath of God. Do you understand? Christ came to save us from God. And in revival and awakening, that mercy is extended extraordinarily. Why wouldn't we want to be praying and seeking such a thing as that? Do you know how... Here's how stout-hearted we are. JT shared an article with me yesterday, maybe. Andy Stanley, which is Charles Stanley's son, has fully endorsed and is defending homosexual conduct in his church and has even said that they are some of the best Christian servants he knows. And uh, when you're talking about a massive following of the thousands that he has in a mega church. This is the kind of arrogance that's being pumped out. Not by a a, a secular organization. Well, I mean, it is, right? Technically, but it's, 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 it's posing as a Christian entity. And it's, it's, it's perverting the gospel of Christ. And it is glorifying wickedness and sin. And in times of revival, though, not even that can stand against God. And those who are lost in that find themselves at the mercy of God and become penitent and on their face. Why would we not be seeking that as the solution? You think legislation is going to fix it? No, only God can fix it. Would you rather them be changed legally or internally? Well, that's why he writes what he does. Number three, the king of Zion takes away the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh. We often talk of people having hard hearts, right? You become hard-hearted. Even Christians on, a, on occasion become, can become hardened again in their heart. Not, not, to, not to the point of a loss of salvation, but certainly to a loss of joy and and most definitely to a, a loss of effective Christian witness. But then God in His mercy in, in a revival will come and melt that heart of stone and take it away. Then He will give a heart of flesh. And if you will, just think of a rock and a fleshy heart. Okay, that's what I think about in my head. And which would you rather have in here? Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 reads, Rejoice. Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. This is in reference to Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus fulfilled that. Well, notice the phrase, O daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you. And then Ezekiel in chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you. Now, do you see this language here? I will do, God is saying, I will do this and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments to do them. That is the grace of God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is always apparent every time a person is regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit in, in, in conversion to Christ. But it, it is also reanimated in revival. Why would we not want to seek that? Why would we not want to pour everything we've got to become a church that with a singleness of heart and mind pursue such a thing? There's not one problem you have right now that cannot be remediated by a quickening of the Holy Spirit in your life. Not one. Nothing. I don't care how complicated it sounds. It's, not, it's no match for the grace of God. I love the fact that it says... And the emphasis being that God will do it. God does it. You can't say I got right with God. No, you didn't. No, He made you right with Him by His sheer grace, lest you be consumed. Number four. He causes the captive exiles to hasten, that he may be loosed, lest he die in the pit and his bread should fail. Isaiah 51, 14. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. Isaiah speaking, forward-looking to that return of that remnant from Babylon. As they escape, and a very small remnant it was, and their bonds were loosed, and their bread did not fail, and God was good to them. Do you know that return from Babylonian captivity on behalf of those, those Jews who returned? They didn't deserve that. God provided that in His magnificent grace. So a time of revival is what God does out of His benevolence to us. We talked in Wednesday night going through the attributes of God of which this coming Wednesday will be our last one. But we talked about the loving kindnesses of God. They are so rich that we often live like we don't remember them. I got I to gotta just say this here at this juncture. If you're bored in your faith, that is backsliddenness. I've been there. I know what that's like. There's only one solution for that. A getting before God begging for reprieve that he would cause you to have the sensibilities and those correct excuse me but feelings 
of the Spirit that you need to have, that you should have to be animated to live for Him and that be your, that be your soul desire in life. That's what revival does to you. It takes those who are bored and snaps them out of it. It it, it changes everything. Number five, he takes off the tattered garments of the prodigal, clothes them them with the best robe, and gives him a cordial welcome to all the lavishness of his grace. That's a really rich statement right there, isn't it? Words like lavish, I don't use much. Tattered garments of the prodigal. I remember a man down in Utah. I talk about him sometimes. Rory Davis was his name. He had a nickname in church of Tigger. Because he always bounced. He was very excited about the Lord. And so he did this. And so we called him Tigger. And uh, Rory, with that first Sunday when Rory came. Man, oh man, if you could have saw what I saw. He, uh, he had on fancy clothes that were indicative of those who, who, who go to nightclubs and bounce. I mean, he literally looked like a bouncer, too. He had all of the stuff in his face and head and big tattoo here with the collar. I mean, he nice clothes just of the world, very, very worldly. He don't wear that now. In fact, he wears Jesus. Jesus looks good on Rory. He took off those tattered garments of that prodigal and he clothed him with his best robe and he gave him cordial welcome to all the lavishness of his grace and God has restored to Rory the the things that the years the locust devoured through drugs and gun running in Florida. Oh yes, Rory is a case, an example of what God does when he saves a soul. In Luke chapter 15, we read of that story. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe on this prodigal son and put it on him. Put, on a, put a ring on his hand and sandal on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found and they rejoiced. That's what God does. Those are the things that God does. And it was a mercy of God to bring the man to his senses in the first place. He brings those who have been long in bondage out of the prison house, knocks off the chains that bind them down to sin and death. Isn't that what happens when you're freed from sin? Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He knocked it off. And that came about rather suddenly. In Isaiah 42 and verse 7, uh, we read, To open the blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison. (coughs) Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That's what God does. It makes me think of when Peter and John were in prison. There they were, stuck in the back, in the stocks. Been beaten. Do I have that? Well, there's two occasions. I was thinking of Paul on that one. But that Peter and John too. But in both occasions, the angel appeared and their chains were just, they just fell off. And they were set free by the hand of God. And that's what happens still today. Every time a sinner is turned and every time even a Christian gets reanimated 
and reconnected with the Lord their God every time. He bestows the immunities and protections of sons and daughters and receives them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That word immunities does mean protections. He restores these protections and receives them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In Romans 8, 1 and 2 we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Christ has taken those bondage chains and cast them off. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. We do know that this relates back to Romans 8 and verse 1. But notice how he, he, we know that we are protected from God's wrath. Now, the wicked are not so. In Revelation 6 it reads, And he said to the, these, these mighty men of the earth, said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? If you don't know Christ, you will be begging to be smashed by a boulder so that you won't be seen. But He sees through stone. You cannot escape. You need Christ. That's the message of the gospel, to be free. Lastly, as we have read, he bestows these immunities, protections of sons and daughters. And notice in the purple, he receives them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Romans 8.21, this verse, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Because right now we know that the whole earth groans and travails in birth pangs till now, waiting. And this is the last part. But we see this glorious liberty. And in 1 John 3, 2, we read, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed... We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That is all the Scripture that is connected with that paragraph by Gardner Spring. People don't write like that anymore. We don't even speak that way anymore. But that illustrates perfectly the suddenness and the biblical effects of revival. I'll close with this. And if there is no mystery in this for an individual, why should it be thought incredible that instances of the same nature should be multiplied and greatly multiplied in any given period? If there are dispensations of grace above the ordinary operations of the Spirit, they may exist in very different degrees at different times. And if the immediate and special influences of the Holy Ghost are to be expected in the edification of a single saint or the conversion of a single sinner, why may they not be expected in the edification and conversion of multitudes? It is not above the reach of God's power 
nor beyond the limits of His sovereignty. God can as easily send down a shower as a single drop. He can as easily convert two as one, three thousand as one hundred. That is what biblical revival is. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you're unconverted, you need Jesus. That invitation, that that command actually to repent is before you. Flee from your sin and cling to Christ and cry out for mercy for God to save you. And Christian, if you're bored or indifferent, even now, even still, know how incredibly stubborn your plight is and repent and ask God for deliverance from that. You come as JT plays.